The dream is always the same. Instead of going home, I go to the neighbors. I ring, but nobody answers. Their doors open, so I go inside. I can hear the shower running, so I go upstairs to see what's what. And then I see him, this guy, this naked blonde guy, soaping himself down right in front of me. Suddenly he turns, he sees me and he says, Hi Jim, I just got back from a week in France with the wife's family. I was thinking we've been prattling on about movies for weeks now. We need a change. On Midnight Video 18, let's prattle on about movie soundtracks instead. And that's when I realise that he's Phil. Yeah, I say to him, yeah, why not? One thing though, we've banged on about Tangerine Dreams so much in the past few months. Let's just leave them out of this show, okay? It's a dream, so I go with it. Then I'm moving forwards towards him, through the clouds of steam. It's difficult to see and... And suddenly I'm recording the show, but I've not prepared anything. I have to think of the greatest film music of all time, there and then. What? What do I choose? It's raining One, two. So this is uh, a change of direction for us, isn't it? We're uh, going off the beaten path. Yep, show 18. We're going to do something a little bit different. Soundtracks. Thanks to everyone who's uh, contributed to this. We've got a lot of feedback which we're going to be reading out throughout the show. Um, yeah, and we've got quite a lot of film soundtracks we want to talk about ourselves. I don't know, we've not really prepared an introduction for this, but it is such an important part of films. And Even though everybody's got their favourites and probably not so favourites it's it's something everyone's got an opinion on um, yeah it's about time we just sort of um, took things down a gear and had a little rattle yeah let's just let's get subjective on people's asses yeah so um, despite the fact we've had a long time to prepare this um, we kind of swapped notes on this yesterday <laughs> just to make sure we weren't all we're going to have identical lists or whatever that's how we roll that's how we do it nah, <laughs> wacky podcast um so yeah settle back and we're gonna um talk about movie soundtracks i'm a vulgar man but i assure you my music is not so i'm gonna kick off proceedings uh, i haven't really put them in any order no well i certainly haven't so these are just 20 odd soundtracks that occurred to me stuff i wanted to say about so yeah. talk about so but first one at the top of my uh written down list anyway is Ghost Dog Way of the Samurai um, filmed by Jim Jarmusch with Forrest Whitaker in the role um, and RZA from the Wu-Tang Clan did the soundtrack there's two available soundtracks for this there's like a, a US release which is absolute dog turd uh, it's really poor but the Japanese import is the actual original soundtrack and it's Fucking brilliant! Dog so turd's a bad term. I don't know if it's yeah. one of these peculiar things like <laughs> bad yeah. meaning good. No, no. The and chronic is that another one you young people use? Chronic's uh, weed, isn't it? Like I, I wouldn't know. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, not me. Uh, yeah, but which is apt for this. But yeah, I, one of my little notes I wrote I was like Bushido beats because you know the concept of having this sort of guy following the samurai code of practice or practice of no code of practice in uh, New York. 
I've got to admit, I've not sat through all of this film. Oh, I um, I've seen quite a few of the Jim Jarmusch, and I think he's again he's known uh, for doing compilations usually. So this sounds like quite an unusual soundtrack. Yeah, it's it's great. I mean, it, it's at its purest. It's just uh, very rizza based beats uh, with Japanese sounds and influences. But there's a lot of guest rapping from other Wu Tang members, Ghostface Killer. Uh, old dirty bastard method man but it just it works brilliantly as a whole like the album but also within the film you know it it, it, he just nails it apparently when he was making it uh rizzo was sat in a he had a portable studio on set and he was making the soundtrack whilst it was being filmed he'd see the dailies and Mm -hmm. then he'd put music to it but yeah mention of rizzo um reminds me someone who's absolute absent from this list just to tell people up front is tarantino yeah i know it's funny, isn't it? Oh well. And Scorsese. Uh, I Scorsese yeah, yeah. Might have been in there because his. Well, I came cool. close with one of the other composers, which I'm sure people can guess. But um, yeah, yeah. No. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, uh, my my first choice, and like I say, these aren't in any order, it's just stuff that occurred to me, is Alien by Jerry Goldsmith. Um, I, I really love Jerry Goldsmith's stuff. I think he had quite a varied kind of style. He's not someone like, uh, let's say, I mean, I really like James Horner as well, but his stuff you can kind of tell fairly immediately. Jerry Goldsmith did a lot of quite atonal stuff from time to time. Um, I mean, Alien was one of the first films I really got into. Rather than just sort of enjoying it, I probably started being a poncy teenager and watching it over and over. And especially because it's got all that mythos with missing scenes and and whatnot. Um, and also, you may be able to correct me on this. Did because I know you've got the the quadrilogy as it's called on um, DVD. Is it true? I think Jerry Goldsmith did a complete score beforehand, and Ridley Scott told him to get lost and come up with something else. I don't know, but it does ring a bell. Yeah, because I was through, I yeah. was trying to find out, clarify on that yesterday, and it sounds like possibly he did a in, he did a complete score, but Ridley Scott wasn't happy with it, but chopped it around a great deal to get it to fit with the final film. It's a great score in its own right, but it's so untypical of what you get from science fiction and horror. And I think you know people know this Alien such a well-known film. It was originally going to be a kind of mid-range thing. Uh, I think it had been greenlit even before Star Wars, but when Star Wars was such a hit. Uh, 20th Century Fox put more money into it and really went to town on it. It's, it's like I say, it's not a typical horror or science fiction score, but it does really sum up something mysterious about space uh, appropriately. I'm being quite inarticulate, and that's what's so good about music. It sort of nails that feeling and emotion. Mm. Um, it's really brilliant stuff. And you know, another curio on it when I was uh, researching it is um, a lot of the cues were from a score Jerry Goldsmith did for. Freud, John Huston movie, which I've still not seen with Montgomery Clift. Mm. But yeah, um, fantastic score. Really love it. It's kind of weird by the time you get to Alien 3 when they start using electric guitars and things. Because, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, absolutely. As, as much as Geiger's design is iconic, I think that Jerry Goldsmith score, again, is so much of the character of that film.
my second one is another Jim Jarmusch film, <laughs> uh, Dead Man. Uh, Neil Young provided mm-hmm. the soundtrack for this, and I think at the time, Jarmusch might have directed some Crazy Horse videos or the live concerts. So that as they were making Dead Man, they were listening to a lot of Neil Young, and I think he just basically said to him, "Look, can you turn something out for us?" And it's quite astonishing. It, I don't know if I'm trying to think when Dead Man was made. Was it early nineties? Uh, it would. It came out in around ninety six because I remember oh, okay. I tried watching it though. at the pictures quite a few times. It was mm. always there was always going to be a showing of it at the Prince Charles, which shows um, movies which had just come off general release before they got released on well, in those days video. But I remember trying to see it several times and things coming up to stop me. So I'm pretty sure it was ninety six. It came out, but it's just drenched with like abstract guitars and little acoustic motifs and it, it's it's really unusual for Neil Young and it's it's probably the only elect, electric guitar sort of sound Neil Young stuff that I like I mean mm-hmm. I much prefer his country like Harvest Moon and Harvest wow. um, I didn't even realise there was a, a, a thing with Neil Young about electric versus acoustic um, th- I don't like, think there it's is it's not like Bob Dylan and the it's more for my, my uh, person. I don't like the stuff he's done when it's like more rocking and heavy. I, I much prefer the uh, Linda Ronstadt. Wow. Uh, You're not rocking stuff. in the free world. No, definitely not. It's kind of post-rocky in a not in rocky a the of, boxer. No, like post-rock. Okay, and um, what do you think of the film Dead Man? It's been a while since I've seen it. All I can really remember is Buffalo, <laughs> and Lance Henriksen treading yeah. on someone's head. Yeah. Oh, which wow. is ghastly. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. I, I yeah I really like that man. Yeah. I think it's a great film. I love Jim John Moose films though. Anyway, uh, yeah, this is the time before Johnny Depp had done his pirates thing, wasn't it? So he was um, a long time. Yeah, he was still a box office draw to some extent, but he was doing a lot of peculiar movies. Yeah, he still had um, things like Edward, you know, and Arizona Dream. I think was around. At this oh God, time. yeah, the Costa Rica film. Mm. Yeah. My second choice is another iconic movie, Jaws. Uh, I've never seen that. Haven't you? It's about this. um, (laughs) It's a rip-off of Claws, the thing about the (laughs) devil bear. Uh, No, Jaws, obviously, everybody knows. Um, John Williams. Um, I mean, well, what are we now? Uh, 18 shows in. I would say, even though I'm a bit loath to do such things, if I was really pressed to my favourite film ever, it probably would be Jaws. Um, I really love this film. Uh, I'm not going to go on about the film too much. because uh, we're talking about the soundtrack but yeah everyone knows the theme from Jaws um, it's kind of again famously uh, bears certain similarities to Stravinsky's uh, Rites of Spring one of the reasons I picked it though is it's it's so identifiable as this great piece of film music um, if you're kind of if you were born if you were young when it came out or you born since it came out I'm sure it's something that's terrified people. Just the actual music itself is so atmospheric, even if you're not seeing any images to go with it. But something I really wanted to say about it is um, quite famous. Um, Originally, the movie Jaws was going to, throughout it, use this prop shark, which um, no one could get to work. And even now, it's it's kind of... um, 
not very well regarded the prop when it does turn up I mean I, I don't think it does too bad a job but that that, that prop shark was going to be there from the beginning but when they couldn't get it to work this is apparently when Spielberg um, said we're going to need to do something else so John Williams came up with this theme um, very basic theme which just suggested the shark and works so much better than if you actually had a prop there you know even if it had been the greatest kind of animatronic shark I don't think it would have been anything like as effective as this sort of string theme. No, it's extraordinary because of the. It, it's just synonymous with sharks. Now, whenever I see an image of a shark, I ha it's always in my mind. Yeah, it's so it's so it's clever. Like it's build. it's it's, tra it's transformed the world's view of. Uh, how they how they see sharks in yeah. some way or hear sharks. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean it's a great soundtrack beyond that, and I really love um, the second half of the movie when it becomes more about these three guys out on the boat in the open sea trying to get this shark, and they're all obsessed about it. And uh, John Williams using these really great kind of um, quoting lots of sort of sea adventure melodies, and it really helps build up the atmosphere. There's a lot more to the Jaws soundtrack than just that main theme. Yeah, oh the shanties. And yeah, stuff. all yeah, that kind brilliant. of great stuff in it. So yeah. um, absolutely fantastic soundtrack. One of our favourites here. Uh, Peter Greenway as Z and Two Noughts was one of his earlier efforts and he's been intrinsically linked with Michael Nyman the composer up until Prospero's books I think yeah that was the last one and yeah Z and Two Noughts for me is like my favourite one it's like all, all of the films that Nyman scored for Greenway um, he he was described what was going to happen. He never knew. He never saw rushes or anything. He he given actually a script even or I think he might have been given a script. But Greenaway generally would just say to him, "Oh, it's going to be doing this, or this is going to be in this manner." And um, he'd give him some uh, pointers, you know, like Mozart's this or Purcell's this. And um, yeah, Z and Two Notes for me is the f is just brilliant throughout. But there's one particular. Uh, piece called Lescargo, which is towards the end, which is from a sim, uh, an earlier, um, very rousing, fast violin movement or piece, piece <laughs> that just it's it's almost violent, like the way it's just like going forward. Like, and then this woman starts singing, and she's got the highest voice I've ever heard. It, it's almost electronic. Oh right, you're not sure I if think. it's real or not. Yeah, it, I know it's real because mm. um, she sings in the falls as well. She does all oh, the yeah, bits in the yeah. falls, um, which is ear splitting. Because yeah, this was the first Greenaway I saw, and yeah, the music was um, was so great. That was something very distinct from the rest of the film, as much yeah. as I enjoyed the rest of it. And is it Angel Fish Decay, the one they show over all these lapse photography pieces of um, animals decaying? Well, that's the yeah, that's that the, the one you're referring that's, to right. because it's called Angel Fish Decay earlier, yeah. and then Lescargo right. later. You know, at the end. Oh, right when the yeah, 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 yeah. I'm with you now. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I was very tempted to have some Michael Nyman Greenaway movie uh, music in there. The one I'd have probably gone for would be um, the Cook, the Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. Yeah. I mean, I really love that music in there. Which is it called? Memoriam, memorial. I think Michael Nyman wrote it for um, the. Oh God, I forgot which football tragedy it was. Was it Bradford Hillsborough. or Hillsborough? 
Ugh, I don't know. But it, and yeah, uh, an earlier draft when you were sending me notes through was for um, z- uh, Drowning by Numbers, yeah. which has fantastic music in it. I think it's the quite order, tough. I, I mean, just to that collaboration of the two of them is so great. It's worked so well since. Um, well, I mean, the stuff on the falls, but really from Draftsman's contract. Mm-hmm. Um, less less so with Prospero's books, I think. But yeah, there's nothing very memorable in that. Although it's not the best. Film. I mean, no, that's that's no. we discussed this at length before. That's where it kind of started dropping to pieces for me with mm. Greenaway. Although one I thought you might include because you have written about it at some length on your own blog is um, Vim Merton's the Belly of an Architect. Yeah, score. I, that I was going to just direct people to that. Yeah, <laughs> I was I was I was going to mention that at the end, but yeah, it's great. It kind of is in that same realm of Nyman, but it's not yeah. trying to ape it. It's his own style. <laughs> My next choice um, is Vertigo um, by Bernard Herrmann. Well, um, Bernard Herrmann, one of the most famous film composers, and this is the centenary of his birth, isn't it? Um, Mm. I was kind of caught between this and possibly um, his soundtrack for Scorsese's Taxi Driver, which the first time I saw Taxi Driver, which was... um, I'm going to talk about it at some length now, probably... That was the first film I ever saw at the Prince Charles Cinema, which we've, we mentioned earlier. And given Taxi Driver's this very grimy, bleak, mid-70s movie, the soundtrack did seem to come from another era altogether. It's just the last thing Herman did. But anyway, I did say I wasn't going to talk about that. So Vertigo, even though that of Hitchcock movies isn't my favourite by a long stretch, I know it's very well regarded, I, I'm, I'm not a fan of it particularly, but the music to it is... Um, Extraordinary. It it it's very identifiably because Herman and Hitchcock again had a collaboration going back a long way. Um, it's identifiably one of those scores from those films, but it just sounds like they've really pushed it into a different direction altogether. And um, I'm sure everyone knows the plot of Vertigo, although it's quite a spoiler-heavy thing, so I won't go into the specifics. But the music just is somehow better than the movie at conveying what the film's about. It does seem to be about this somewhat troubling dream um, which you don't want to go near but is very alluring and sort of reels you in Um, I don't have a great deal more to say about it I mean obviously that collaboration with Herman and Hitchcock's very celebrated and is fantastic Um, very tempting to talk about the Psycho soundtrack as well Mm, but um, I've got that in my head now yeah yeah. (laughs) Um, Mm. you've probably heard this because they they interviewed Laurie Johnson I think who was Mm. uh, uh, who did the Avengers theme music and he was saying with Psycho, the, the story he heard from Herman was um, Hitchcock gave Herman the film, the print of Psycho, and said, score it. The only thing I'll say is don't go anywhere near the shower. I want that in total silence. Herman then obviously did this incredibly famous thing with the violins, the screechy violins in the shower. And Hitchcock seemed happy, really happy with the end results. And um, Herman was saying, well, did, did you mind about the shower? And he went, yeah, it was great. <laughs> no problems with it whatsoever.
Next up, I've got Zatoichi, the Blind Swordsman, um, by Takeshi Kitano. Um, uh, music done by Keiichi Suzuki. But this this could be one of my favorites, most most listened to um, soundtracks. It works amazingly with the film. It's very rhythmically driven. Uh, lots of drumming, quite contemporary in a sort of electronic approach but there are numerous scenes where people are doing stuff on screen such as like digging or they're building a house and the music starts to reflect everything you know everything becomes synchronized and this is actually used for the soundtrack as well um if you buy the cd um yeah and at the end there's just this big huge tap dance number which is it's just overwhelming with the uh, the way it builds and builds because you've got all the, the tap dancing going on and then these horns and brasses and and it's something to do with ja that I, I love with Japanese soundtracks or Japanese movies or music in general which is very much like the country they they managed to fuse like ancient and old and tradition with contemporary and new like no one else I mean there's just some m marriage of life that. <laughs> that we can't grasp in the West, I don't think. Yeah, it don't usually... demarcate things as well. Yeah, no, it's, and this exemplifies it like nothing else, really. Uh, well, apart from a few more that I've written down. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I, it's an absolute must for me. My next one is Popul Vu, if I've pronounced the name right. Um, their work with Werner Herzog over several films. The one I'm going to um, pick out specifically is Nosferatu, because I think, again, that was the first Herzog movie I saw, and I remember the opening of that, which is um, this sort of roving camera going around a crypt. And it's got a very basic piece of music, but it was so haunting, and it's sort of it sounded like it could have been cliched horror movie music if you weren't careful but it was just really ominous and haunting and fantastic and um, obviously I've seen a lot of Herzog since um, and the stuff with Popol Vuh is fantastic I mean they did Aguirre uh, Fitzcarraldo Aguirre is the one for me Yeah, that opening as well actually yeah you've, you've made a liar off me the first Herzog movie I saw was Aguirre but I forgot I was watching I watched it on um, it was on a little TV monitor in the library when I was doing my postgrad huh. I remember thinking oh, Aguirre oh, yeah I've heard of this it's got a reputation but you know I wasn't really looking forward to, but I thought because actually I was going to watch all their films in alphabetical order. <laughs> they, you could just take tapes off the wall and put them in these little players. And um, the great thing about Aguirre, it was a really great film anyway. But I remember being struck by this electronic kind of score to it, given it's about conquistadors going around South America. Um, yeah, South America. It's a fantastic soundtrack, isn't it? And oh, yeah. You know, Lord knows we have talked about Tangerine Dream a lot, but that felt like it was in this, the same kind of territory, and it made 
history seem like science fiction. It yeah. was kind of yeah. It's got that weird sort of thing in the seventies that like people like Tangerine Dream. Well, it's Teutonic, so you've yep. got Tangerine Dream, Kraftwerk, uh, Popol Vuh. Yeah, they create yeah. these otherworldly, but like quite folky mm. sounds as well. Yeah, well, the, the rather pretentious note I've got down is that it sounds like folk music, and a lot of the stuff from more uh, specifically Fitzcarraldo, I suppose, sounds like it's played on mandolins or guitars <coughs> and stuff. But it, it sounds a bit like Bagpuss, the old kid. <laughs> yeah. But from a different planet altogether, it doesn't mm. seem to have a real, you know, uh, obvious uh, ethnic kind of origin to it. And the thing is, um, for a long time I was hoping, which is kind of weird to say now when you can, like say, get stuff off YouTube if you just wanted to hear it and yeah. get an idea of it. I was hoping somewhere there'd just be a compilation of Popovul's music either for or as used in Herzog. It didn't seem to be available. This is when I was going around vinyl shops and things. Oh, right. Um, I have got a couple of CDs of Popol Vuh. It's kind of a bit tedious to listen to on its own. So it's a great example of when that music then works in tandem with the imagery. And it's difficult to listen to it without thinking of Kinski. Yeah. <laughs> uh, either as Aguirre or Fitzcarraldo or, you know, Nosferatu. Or I'm not sure if they do the music for Wojciech. Um, no, I don't think I don't so, think that. No. But that has another, you know, great use of music in that. Mm. It's got this bizarre kind of... It sounds like the Portsmouth Symphonia at the beginning <laughs> yeah. of that movie when Kinski's running on and standing in, uh, panting in front of this uh, little <laughs> army, uh, army. It's uh, because yeah, because he's actually gone the other direction totally with his last sort of like the last five or six years of filmmaking, hasn't he? He's gone very much more into the traditional classical, mm. uh, classical style for his soundtracks. <laughs> well, he's all over the bloody shopping. Uh, yeah. Um, Popleville, and you appointed it yourself when you said you do have a compilation of. Yeah, um, I've, got, I've yeah. got all the Herzog stuff. Excellent. <laughs> now I'll be, uh, I'll be uh, coming around your house sometime soon. And for me, is something absolutely groundbreaking now. It's the first electronic uh, soundtrack by um, Louis and Bebby Barron. Who, well, Louis Barron was his name, and I think his wife was Charlotte May or something like that. They provided the score for the the most lavish sci-fi production up until that time. Shakespeare's Tempest on another planet with added robots and yeah Monsters yeah the budget me. was massive for this nothing had been seen like it or was seen like it until Kubrick did 2001 I don't think but yeah this score is absolutely amazing for me because I love electronic music I'm, that's where my heart lies really and you'll probably guess from most of my choices generally go in that direction this is just nuts it's just homemade um, I don't know you can't even Does call it, them synths you like don't get the impression it was played on a keyboard rigged up it was more like um, early days of the BBC's Radiophonics workshop where which I, I'm sure are going to be written there yeah. <laughs> um, where things were absolutely done by hand so it's more like generating sounds uh, a lot sound of things sound like yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, vibrating glass or something yeah. or just 
Theremins feature in it, I think, don't they? No. Or, or is that... I'm getting no, they don't. Day the Earth Stood Still, maybe. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, it's a very minimal score, and it's one of those things when you can't quite separate it from the sound effects of the film. But yeah, it's... I've got to say, it's probably one of the things that's held up best in that movie. I don't really want to knock Forbidden Planet, but... Um, a lot of the imagery in that film is what we'd now think of as if someone was taking the piss out of 50s sci-fi it's all of that very garish look which yeah absolutely was bang up to date at the time mm. great matte painting work in that but this yeah. is the the, 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 the the soundtrack to it's one of the things that's really held up as pioneering yeah undoubtedly for me I mean I bought it on vinyl about 10 or 15 years ago I can't remember they had a reissue on mm. some big nice 180 gram Final and uh, I used to like DJ with it. I put it on like mix it in between tracks and it's just so out there. It fits perfectly with like some abstract electronic music or some techno or something. You know, as a as a break, it's like it's similar to kind of what Raymond Scott was doing. He was another sort of pioneer in electronic music at that time. Again, building these generators, sound generators, and just creating madness like that, but wonderful madness <laughs> so when you were DJing did you just use the soundtrack from this or did you use samples of the dialogue no like, I didn't um, use the dialogue you didn't get is it Anne Francis the girl yeah I think? Uh, asking Robbie where he'd been Robbie the robot and he goes uh, I remember this we, we watched this in college when we were doing The Tempest and I think the lecturer rather lazily put this on <laughs> uh where have you been, Robbie? And Robbie the robot shuffles in and says, I'm sorry, I was giving myself an oil job. <laughs> Following on in a similar theme, my next choice is a cult movie favourite, uh, which I only watched, well, fairly recently in the last few months, Liquid Sky. Woohoo! <laughs> you had some trouble getting through this, didn't you, I think? <laughs> no, the music. The music. The music's I, amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, oh, I, the film's quite hard work, but... The film is hard work, but it's... I mean, yeah, I, I'm trying to talk about the soundtrack more than the film. The film was something... I'm, I'm sure a lot of people will have seen this, because it does have a real reputation as sort of... It's not like a designer cult movie, but it really... It's got a big audience, big following. It was something I was watching thinking, this is pretentious garbage. But there was something about it which really kept me hooked in. It's one of those weird times when your body and your mind are kind of <laughs> not quite working together. Um, whether that was the music, I'm not sure, but that was definitely something that worked brilliantly in this. Um, the, the the plot of this is, um, it's kind of set in New York in the very early 80s and you've got this punk new wave kind of scene going on, but at the same time a miniature UFO, correct me if I'm wrong, a miniature UFO visits a heroin-addicted lesbian um, and um, sucks energy out of people during orgasm. I seem yeah, to recall. That's that's it. Um, <laughs> the thing is, I think the movie absolutely understands how ludicrous that premise is. So there's a, a great deal of humour, although it's done in quite a um, dry way. <laughs> um, <laughs> the music, though, is again it's electronics, but it's slightly before synths. I suppose it, it does sound quite clunky. Um, oh, it'll be, uh, no, there are synths there yeah. definitely, but it's not done in that very slick 80s since where I'm playing air keyboards at the uh, <laughs> microphone at the moment no it's um, very homemade it's you know it sounds very angular and peculiar and just gives this whole thing a really unique feel 
it, the thing is the movie Liquid Sky is so close that the imagery in it, because when this UFO is at work you go into these overexposed shots and the, a lot of the when I was looking at the soundtrack uh, reminding myself of it on YouTube lots of people's comments on the clips shown were Lady Gaga you know, and the imagery in that is very much like a lot of her um, makeup and clothes designs um, that, that the, the main character uses in this mm. Um, and yeah, the whole thing, the whole film is so much like a pop promo from that era that, that that's possibly the reason it works so well. That it's hard to distinguish the music from the the imagery a lot of the time. Mm. But um, yeah, there's some there's some original songs in here, but there's also a lot of reinterpretations of classical pieces by the director of the film, who is Slava Zuskaman, if I can pronounce that correctly. <laughs> But yeah, done in that kind of, I'm sure this is a movie that will crop up later. Uh, there's a, Yes, obviously, there's a famous electronic reinterpretation of classical pieces that we'll talk about in a, one of our later selections. But yeah, um, really, really fantastic soundtrack. I mean, a similar one I was going to talk about is Radio One by uh, Chris Petit. Oh, yeah, that's got Kraftwerk, David yeah. Bowie, Lowy. Yeah, I was just going to lump those together because it was yeah. another one where the film I was watching thinking, this is quite dull, I'm not sure it's going, but the music was so good, it was, it worked with the, the imagery. Brilliantly. Because the plot of that is basically a guy goes off to find out about the, su the possible suicide of his brother. His brother died in Bristol. There's very little going on, but um, the music in it selected is, um, it's a lot of Bowie's, David Bowie's stuff from his Berlin era. Uh, Kraftwerk didn't Vin Vendors produce it or find some did some financing for it so this is why there's quite oh, a large right. German element to this thing set in Thatcher's Britain I think the Conservatives yeah. had just got in at this point so I didn't realise that because yeah. I only discovered that film recently within the last couple of years mm. I didn't really know what to expect but there's just this mm. guy sat in a car turns the radio on and there's just like radioactivity yes. I was like oh wow this yeah, is the first the time I've heard yeah. Kraftwerk on a, on a soundtrack and then it like yeah. plays the entire tune as well yeah, yeah. the yeah. songs are almost played out in the, it, yeah. the length but that's very much yeah it does seem like an experiment of taking or a visual album in some kind whatever of. yeah <laughs> I mean certainly you're probably old enough to remember this you used to just tape tracks onto a cassette tape yeah. for your car or something. Oh yeah. But it felt like that if you actually had mixed images tape. to go yeah, mixtape if you had images to go with that. And uh Radio One and Liquid Sky I'd recommend. Nostalgia, nostalgia hit here. Uh, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence by uh, well Ryuichi Sakamoto, who stars in the film but also did the soundtrack, and it's directed by Nagisa Oshima, who did the fantastic Max Monomoto as well. Yeah, this is like one of my earliest childhood memories is um, sitting with my mum, and she was a massive David Bowie fan, and she was watching this, and I remember I must have been about five or six. But hearing the sound, the 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 theme tune, like, you know, it's really famous. I yeah, think. very melodic. Yeah, but it's just like, every time I, even now, I'm almost like moved to tears by it. It it's, is. It's, it's a very melancholy tune. It just grabs me like uh, it's hard to explain. I mean, it's obviously it's quite a personal thing. It evokes the film as well. You know, the the situation of the film, which incidentally features. Um, 
beat Takeshi in one of his oh, earliest right. roles as the sergeant. Because I've never seen the entire film. It's a sort of prisoner of war camp. Korean. With, um, yeah. with Bowie. Bowie Tom is Conti, Mr. Lawrence, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, oh, no, Tom Conti, Conti is, is Mr. Uh, Lawrence. Yeah. yeah, but Bowie's in it as a sort of shell-shocked, um, hippie-esque soldier. <laughs> I who? love it when they get Bowie to play someone like an alien who's pretending <laughs> to be a human or a shell shot person. <laughs> what is he at the start of the Twin Peaks movie? He's just some. Oh, he's an FBI agent who's gone. <laughs> he's gone west, doesn't he? Oh uh, yeah, play to your uh, strengths. <laughs> <laughs> well, he does. I've 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 got a big thing for Bowie, so <laughs> especially in films. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Merry Christmas to Lawrence. I I can't get enough of that as well. That's up there with Zatoichi for me, and there's a. A vocal version of the theme tune called Forbidden Colours, which David Sylvian did, uh, David Sylvian of Japan. But I always think this is a travesty. Why didn't Bowie sing it? Mm. Really? I mean, I, I do like I do like the Sylvian version because I've got a real thing for that eighties kind of voice yeah. um, sound. But I think Bowie would have. How about <laughs> if Gary Newman had done it? Uh, apart from Gary Newman, I don't like Gary Newman at all. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, uh, the, the the story is. David Bowie and Gary Newman were both going to be on Kenny Everett's 1979 New Year's special, who's going out at midnight, and Bowie was very insistent that Newman was kept distant from him. <laughs> he didn't like the idea of this rip-off. Uh, Fair play, I um, agree with that. I was just going to ask you, but much of a fan of Sakamoto stuff, otherwise Yellow Magic Orchestra? I love Yellow Magic Orchestra, who, for me, after, like we were talking earlier about Popol Vuh and stuff, so through the 70s it was a very much the electronic music was dominated by this Teutonic sound. It was very serious, cold, angular. Mm. Then you had Yellow Magic Orchestra. Trusted yeah. Japanese come in and just like fill it with humour. To join in with the Germans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are there any Italian <laughs> electronic groups? <laughs> there was a lot of Italian disco, Giorgio Moro, you know, <laughs> that sort of sound. But yeah, I mean, I've got probably most of Sakamoto stuff post um, Yellow Magic Orchestra. I mean, yeah. a weird thing with Yellow Mag- Magic Orchestra is they did the original Behind the Mask, which was then a hit for. Um, I think they, Michael Jackson covered it, but then it was a hit for Eric, Eric Clapton. And um, mm. yeah, but I do like their version. There's a nice sh- um, video of them on on YouTube of them performing it in 1979. I think Sakamoto's got a little kind of um, eyes wide shut mask on. Oh or yeah. And also Sakamoto with David Byrne did the Last Emperor soundtrack. next choice is The Thin Blue Line uh, by Philip Glass um, the movie is by uh, Errol Morris and the reason I picked this obviously Philip Glass now is an enormously famous uh, figure and even if you don't know well I'm sure everyone listening to this will know the name but if, if someone doesn't know the name you'll recognise the music because it crops up in so many so many adverts and um, and films um, this was the first time I was aware that I'd heard of Philip Glass because this was on TV Christmas 1990. Thin Blue Line is a documentary about a wrongfully um, convicted... Uh, was it a murder of a policeman, I seem mm. to remember? Um, but it, was, it wasn't It was just that Philip Glass's music was so amazing, this kind of very repetitive and hypnotic um, sound. 
it was the first time I think I'd seen one of those documentaries which didn't just think, well, it's only a little, it's, it's you know, we're not doing a proper film, it's a documentary, let's just get the facts down. Errol Morris's approach was to do something totally cinematic, and that's much more the way that films, uh, documentaries are done, well, for the last 20 odd years, you know. <laughs> but it was so unusual, I'm sure someone will correct me, but that was the first time I'd ever seen a documentary which had kind of its own specially done soundtrack. And yeah, it just really elevates the whole thing into something else entirely. He's the dog's knackers, his old film. That's how he's usually described. <laughs> <laughs> well, I might as well chip in there with one of mine, uh, which is Mishima by Philip Glass from Paul Schrader's film, which incidentally is Paul Schrader's best film by far. I've been, I was exposed to Philip Glass. <laughs> <laughs> I was exposed to. I bet you. I, I I dared you. <laughs> From a really young age, actually. I mean, I was lucky enough to see him in like 1990 performing Power Catsy at the at the Barbican, probably. No, no, no. no. Uh, across the tra- opposite Charing Cross on the Thames. Waxy O'Connor's. Ah, <laughs> uh, the Royal Festival Hall. All oh, right, and. I've seen him numerous times since. Saw him perform the entire Catsy trilogy at the Sydney Opera House, mm-hmm. which was just magnificent. One of the best things I've ever seen in my life. The third one's a bit. Oh, it's shit. It's Nakoi Katsy. Nicky Nakino. Nicky Nakino. Steven. Steve Soderbergh produced that. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's toss, but Power Katsy. <laughs> yeah. you, you were shouting that right through New Year. <laughs> Power Katsy, Koyanus Katsy are brilliant. Um, but anyway, but to Mishima, which is, is so good. I can't. Yeah. I've not enough superlatives for it. It's been ripped and used so many times for, like you say, adverts. Oh, the Truman Show used it quite heavily. Yeah, well, his music's um, so evocative and hypnotic. If you want any scene like that, and I know with um, with Watchmen, they used it as a tempo track when Doctor Manhattan goes to Mars. But right. people said, "No, this is this, you need to use that music." And I think they had to go out and get the. Uh, and that was from I can never pronounce it. What is the first one? Uh, the first one is Koyaanisqatsi. Yeah, but um, Mishima, which again, I feel bad. I've not seen, but this is about the actual the writer Mishima and his it's a um, bio- biopic. Biopic. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. That probably. Little bit somewhere, but yeah, this album it's quite short, it's only about 45 minutes long. Um, the score from the film, but the way again, it was like how Nyman and Greenaway worked. Uh, Schrader approached Glass and said, Oh, I'm <laughs> making this film about Mishima, gave him some pointers, and then he came back mm. with that. And Schrader was like, Oh my god, all right, <laughs> this is great. He thought it was an advert for mushy peas, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And yeah, the highlight for me is the Osamu, Osamu, not Osama, <laughs> Osamu's theme, and um, Kyoko's house, which is he manages to use this, develop this rock and roll style guitar and drum, as in old rock and roll, right. as, as it were, and um, but using a, a, a theme that had been used earlier, but with these violins going over the top in his inimitable style and it's absolutely captivating you mentioned Peter Greenaway there I know um, he and Nyman were very excited by what he calls the music coming out of New York in the late 60s so that was Glass uh, and uh, Steve Reich um, John Adams as yeah, well. probably yeah. John Cage to some extent as well but um, Greenaway directed a documentary on Philip Glass I think I think he did things uh, for American composers That's and right, Philip yeah. Glass is one uh, which is it, it's a it does crop up on the satellite channels a little bit it's worth checking out it's um it's not like Greenaway's usual stuff but it's also a good uh, 
a good insight into Philip Glass's working methods. Well, there's a great one anyway. It's like I think it's is called that Philip in Philip? Ten Parts. Yeah, that's the one that goes. He's got a quite a tragic life, hasn't he? With his yeah, it's it's fascinating. Earlier actually. wives and God, yeah, but yeah, he makes a good pizza. Yes, <laughs> it goes. <laughs> Okay, my next choice is Woody Allen. Um, not that he well, actually, he does write his own music. I think he did do the music for Sleeper on his little. That, I'm assuming that was a clarinet you were miming at me there, <laughs> rather than anything. It more, wasn't a uh, pink piccolo, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> the pink oboe. Um, I'm specifically going to pick Stardust Memories, but yeah, Woody Allen's films um, are generally the soundtracks to those are compilations, and they all sound. Um, I'm not sure if this is the case, but they sound like they were taken directly from his own collection. So you get a lot of very crackly um, old jazz. Um, classical music crops up quite a lot as well. And the thing is, these I, I mean, I've got a lot of time for Woody Allen. I've been watching in the last few weeks. I think it was actually a response to one of the... Um, in response to one of the listeners who sent in uh, A is for Woody Allen, it, it made me realise there were a lot of his recent films I'd not seen, and also of his recent ones that I'd not seen for a while, um, or only seen them once. And going back through, yeah, the, the, the soundtracks are so fantastic. I think he's a really good filmmaker who makes really great, well-made films, and the soundtracks add something of a real personal touch. Um, like I say, often it sounds like they've come directly from the vinyl, so they're quite crackly. It just makes the thing a little homemade and also frequently makes me feel like my own musical tastes are a little bit blinkered or limited so yeah you know, you see we all think of Woody Allen as the sort of trad jazz guy but it's really all over the place and quite obscure recordings of well-known tunes but done in peculiar styles I mean uh, one I watched recently which has got a bad press is Kurt, um, Curse of the Jade Scorpion but he uses this very Chinatown kind of mm. rendition of old um, I don't know what piece of music's called cool, but it's the kind of thing you'd have for a, a circus conjurer <laughs> um, but in this kind of widow twanky kind of style I just think wow how, where did he find this from? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm possibly giving him too much credit it's possibly as someone who specifically finds these but it really it's one of those things that is such a, a real characteristic of his movies and in fact the worst Woody Allen film in my book um, I've not watched all of them yet but the worst one I've seen <laughs> I think is Alice from 1990 um, which is a bit whimsical and the review of that by Leonard Maltin who's this very well regarded critic um, is he, he kind of gives it very short shrift the movie but says even the music isn't good as if as if to indicate even if it's a bad Woody Allen film you can rely on some really good music cues in here and yeah. stuff that really works um, 
the one I'm picking is Stardust Memories. I, I suppose it's no better or worse than any of his others, but um, specifically is Django Reinhardt, which is just um, this great, you know, everyone knows him, gypsy guitarist. But given the movie um, Stardust Memories is usually seen as a bit pretentious, or certainly could be seen that way, it's um, a bit of a Fellini eight and a half thing with Woody Allen again playing himself as a film director who's at this festival and he's looking at his own life and really unsure where he's going and what he thinks of his audience um, and having a breakdown that the Django Reinhardt music in that really helps you not helps the film to not vanish up its own ass <laughs> very well although it is brilliantly scripted and so well made but uh, no um, love that Woody Allen stuff so we had loads of correspondence on thank you this. yeah it's it was brilliant i mean already with the a to z it, it's it's such a pleasure to know that people are listening and getting back in touch because yeah, we know you're there <laughs> but we are going to take a little break for a few minutes now yeah um like i say most people got in touch via twitter um Facebook, for this yeah and then there's like matt Matt Nieder has uh, got in touch and written this amazing email which is yeah it's long but I want to do him justice and we're going to read it all out but we're going to split it between Jim and I Um, so I'll I'll Jim and I so here goes it occurred to me recently that the kind of films I'm drawn to tend to have the kind of music that I'd probably have listened to standalone anyway I got into listening to electronic music way before I started properly getting into cult film so I guess it makes sense that a lot of the films that grab me further down the line have these kind of woozy, slightly old electronic soundtracks that are completely in keeping with what I was listening to anyway. Ditto, mate. Uh, Fabio Fritz's main theme from Zombie Flesh Eaters is hands down my favourite movie theme ever. The thudding, minimally melodic primitivism of those pulsing synths is just magnificent. Yeah, I... I'm ashamed I'd left that off actually because I'd agree with well, that. Well, thank God we're mentioning it now. I mean, yeah. do, do you realize? Because this is the one that goes. It's wonderful. <laughs> it, it does. It's quite repetitive, isn't it? Yeah, but that, that's the best. It the works. More repetitive, it the works better. with a, a shark wrestling zombie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my favorite soundtrack overall is from my favorite film ever, Dawn of the Dead. The three-way mishmash of sound sources, library electronics, dark lounge and goblin should in theory be a car crash, but it gels so perfectly and lends an epic sprawl to the film. Also, the Sun High Library Cue by Samuel Park is my favourite ever single cue in a film. I'm perennially tempted to splurge £50 on the library album it was taken from to see if the rest of it's that good. Well, that's the kind of thing I'd do. <laughs> I only recently got round to watching Shogun Assassin, that was the last film I saw where the soundtrack made me think, Christ I need to get the album of this now, you could stick that end theme in a DJ mix of contemporary stuff with no problem. Just like to break off the... Take a breath. Well uh, yes, because um, Shogun Assassin was something we saw relatively recently, um, at the Rio 
Yeah, courtesy of cigarette burns. Yeah. Yeah, Josh, we keep bigging you up. Uh, yeah, well, this is kind of the complete opposite of Time of the Apes, which we covered on the last show. This is kind of, uh, is it three or more Japanese films which were kind of gutted and stuck together? But the soundtrack is really fantastic to that, isn't it? It's, well, yeah, I, I totally agree. It is incredible soundtrack. Uh, but to soothe you for time being, just listen to uh, Jizza from Wu-Tang Clan's Liquid Swords, which was produced by RZA. It's his debut album well Jizz's debut album that's just absolutely chock block full of samples from um, uh, Shogun Assassin N- not that much music but enough music to draw you in because oh, god that is one hell of an album like, it's really really special ok well Phil gets on the oxygen um, canister at the moment <laughs> I'm going to carry on for him <laughs> So yes, carry on with Matt's email. Thank you very much, Matt. We're not we're not being sarcastic. It's fantastic you've given us this much feedback. I love the supergroups of that era who produce soundtrack albums that work just as well as long players as they do as original soundtracks. Tangerine Dream and Goblin, obviously the masters of this. John Carpenter's stuff is wonderful as well. Just a shame his original recordings aren't so widely available anymore. I'd buy a luxury box set of all his synth stuff in a heartbeat. There's a bunch of films where I had the soundtrack albums before I saw the films. Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. You've got yes. your fist in the air there. <laughs> and Midnight Express, the obvious examples here, as well as some of the Tangerine Dream stuff. Recently bought Jürgen Muller's Science of the Sea album, the soundtrack to a documentary I'll probably never see. TV scores, classic Doctor Who, obviously. Malcolm Clark's stuff needs serious reevaluation. But I also think Mark Snow's X-Files music has been rather overlooked lately. Hit and miss, but at times desolately atmospheric. Delia um, Derbyshire. Delia <laughs> Derbyshire, I have yeah. to throw her in there because of the Doctor Who theme reference. Well, yeah. Um, well, yeah, I'll certainly have a chat about Delia Derbyshire. Uh, Malcolm Clark, um, it kind of goes back to what you were saying about Forbidden Planet. Um Malcolm Clark, I think, only did two Doctor Who soundtracks, but one's for the Sea Devils, which is absolutely nuts. Um, the Sea Devils is kind of a well-known... Uh, even if you're not a Doctor Who fan, it's one of these things people have memories of these rubber budgies in string vests coming out of the ocean. Um, but, yeah, Doctor Who, this TV series, had very specific composers working on each story, which really gave it a great atmosphere. Um, and yeah, we, we're into that early 70s era before synthesizers, so it was really much playing around with uh, machinery and editing techniques. And yeah, the Malcolm Clark stuff for the Sea Devils is absolutely nuts. It's it's fantastic. Um, the one he did later, because I know you watched it as a kid, Earthshock, the Cyberman story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is great. It's quite doom laden, and that mm. has, um, if you watched it at the time, a very grim ending in Doctor Who terms, anyway. But I think the music really helps in uh, in getting that across. Well, I think those early sort of electronic approaches to sci-fi films as well matched it so well because they they had those shifts in tone that happened with the scripts or with mm. what was going on, and you know that the sharp drops and contrasts but yeah the, I don't know there's something that's conveyed way more with a, with a, an artificial sound than mm. with an o- organic sound of uh, uh, an instrument yeah well it's, it's one of those things Doctor Who's usually laughed at the older series because it looks so shonky now but um, it wasn't my point um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a genuinely great series of reference books on Doctor Who by Tatwood and Lawrence Miles and a point they keep making is to watch it in the 60s 
we're now looking and thinking the sound, the special effects don't look so good. But in the sixties, the the sound in it was like nothing you'd ever heard before. So just that whole idea of the characters in it, it wasn't like the show now when they can pop back and see their moms in the TARDIS. <laughs> it's easy, you know. The fact that I was stuck in completely alien environments and the background noise was so strange and the you did the the theme music of Doctor Who, it's kind of a famous piece of music as a melody. The way it was rendered originally by the Radiophonics Workshop, you didn't know what instruments it was being played on. Uh it it must have been so frightening just to hear those kind of noises. I, st- I honestly still have very like child young early childhood memories of that theme tune. So it would have been Peter Davison, mm. like and that's when they did a really sort of big synth version of it. You know? Yeah, but it, it, there's something about it's not that. a comforting tune. It's is it? not. No, there's something. That, <laughs> but that's the best thing about old British sci-fi is that it always had that darker element, that undercurrent, which no one else has ever managed to achieve look at yeah, it's patriotism uh, <laughs> <laughs> and just to finish off uh, Matt's email I also like that a lot of the contemporary electronic scene is starting to go back and reference that era of soundtracks too Legovelt takes the Fritzy template and expands it to taking classic house and techno influences the Not Not Fun label released a bunch of stuff last year that took the imaginary OST route best was Dylan Essinger's New Age Outlaws which was like a four track version of Blade Runner and there's a bunch of acts doing the Italo horror disco thing to varied effect, Gatekeeper aren't bad I guess when people talk about cinematic music they tend to refer to strings whereas for me the most cinematic music has always been that sort of sparse tentatively experimental electronic music probably because I listened to a lot of that stuff first, found it atmospheric and then later found myself sucked into films that same that took the same route well, same route as me, mate. <laughs> Matt, seriously, thank you so much for spending the time to uh, to write that. Great, great points. It's fantastic. Yeah, thanks, mate. Oof. Anyway, we've got to start talking about uh, films again now. Hey, waiter. Tell this character to turn his radio off. We mentioned this briefly on the last show. I'm trying to think in what context it was because we, in reality, we only recorded it about half an hour ago. Yeah. Um, Popeye. Oh yes, the Shelley Duvall and uh, Robin. Wood. The, yeah, it was because of uh, Dick Tracy and the you know getting a songwriter to come in and realise this. Warren Beatty doing something world. a bit unusual. Yeah. Yeah. Altman doing Popeye. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to say that Popeye is my favourite soundtrack, but I am going to say that Punch Drunk Love, Paul Thomas Anderson's film uh, with a John Brion score, is my favourite Paul Thomas Anderson film by a long, long, long way and. Yeah, scored brilliantly. There's a lot. There's a wry touch to the music, which goes between like a hula-style ukulele ballads, Shelley Duvall's Popeye song, um, which recurs throughout. There's there's a lot of toy sort of sounds going on here, like small sounds, um, toy instruments, Mm. and repetitive clicks and whirs and organs and washy strings and. It just works so well with the film because obviously you've got Adam Sandler in this kind of role which is him because it's comedic and his heart's on his sleeve kind of thing but he's very withdrawn as well and unsure of himself which well, makes He's another character who's not quite the ticket, is he? Mm. It sort of goes back to when we were talking about the silent partner who's someone yep. who doesn't quite connect with people and is almost too, not honest, yeah, he's too honest with people. Yeah. 
Um, but no, I'm, I'm glad you brought this one up because um, I only saw it relatively recently. I borrowed it off you because I really, I, I think Boogie Nights is a good movie, and that has a kind of compilation soundtrack, which very much sums up the the spirit of the the, the years it covers. Magnolia, I remember saying on an earlier show, was the worst thing I'd ever seen in the cinema. Um, I did watch it the other night again and quite liked it. I still think it's flabby and it's a a guy who's getting away with more than he probably would have done if his previous film hadn't been a hit. But I like the fact with this one, because this is a very short film after he's done these three-hour epics, um, it's a much shorter and he seems a lot more in control. And yeah, the, the music in it is... Uh, I don't know how much of it was done originally, you know, specifically for this film, and how much of it was that. Most of it was a compilation. Yeah, okay. Most of it, I think, like eighty percent of it is Brion scoring. Because mm. quite a notable thing with it, it does cut off, and I know a lot of the extras on the DVD are these. I don't know what the name for it. They have these. I'm um, yeah, wiggling my hand at the microphone. <laughs> There's this thing that almost is what you'd get in a cinema while you were waiting for the film to start, when you have this kind of. Uh, weird, not even a kaleidoscope but a weird light effect yeah. on the screen which seems to work in sync with the music or the sounds that you're hearing it's a very unusual soundtrack isn't it but I love yeah. the um, even, I mean Popeye's a, a fairly dreadful movie No. Um, but I do love the Harry Nilsson songs in that and Shelley Duvall is so great singing He Loves Me because it's so halting and that makes it more sincere than anything you'd get on American Idol or these people who can hit ranges of notes it means nothing but if someone's halting and is singing their heart out you know uh, but can't there's something a lot more honest about that that's the kind of perfection of this film for me is that it's it's so fantastical and like filmic in how it's made. I mean, it, even the DVD has instructions on like turn your contrast, make the blues blue, make the reds red. You know, mm. and it's so not real life. But the characters, like the the mm. love the the love story between Emily Watson and Sandler is it's so poignant. It's it's absolutely convincing. Like. Yeah, I mean that that that's how good the film is that. I don't mind Emily Watson in this, even though usually I'd want to punch her in the throat. The one thing I'd want to add to that, Mm. um, in terms of people not quite... The fact that they're not brilliant singers kind of works. Um, I remember someone on the bus saying they'd been to see David Byrne from Talking Heads, and they were annoyed when he stopped singing old Talking Heads hits and did um, I Want to Dance with Somebody by Whitney Houston. And I rolled my eyes because I'm a big Talking Heads fan and thought oh, it was being a bit ironic. And I looked that up. Um, I, I mention YouTube a lot on this show. <laughs> I looked that up and it's brilliant. I really like his version because the Whitney Houston one's kind of a whatever, a pop song. It's kind of fun. But you don't feel the lyrics at all. He has this very failing voice. And the fact that he's singing, I want to dance with somebody who loves me, it sounds really fantastic. Yeah. I think that's the same thing with the Shelley Duvall thing there. Okay, my next one's very short. I don't have much to say about it because it's so, you know, um, 
James Bernard's Hammer Horror scores. Um, I grew up on Hammer Horror on TV, uh, absolutely fantastic. I'm sure people have seen this on various documentaries. James Bernard did um, the soundtracks to a lot of those, and they're very cheap production line movies. His method for writing the scores, apparently, which he's, he's not embarrassed about, is he'd get the title of the film and just render it melodically. So it was Frankenstein, no, Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> he'd just break it down into syllables and do it that way. Um, the one I'm going to pick is Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, uh, which isn't very well regarded. It's one of the later Frankenstein movies. I love it. It has this really nuts opening where um, a burglar breaks into um, a building in Victorian London. Frankenstein, as in the Doctor, played by Peter Cushing, uh, comes home, but for some reason he's got he's, he's in disguise. He's got this pockmarked rubber mask on. But they have this incredible fight. <laughs> but it's so uh, so frantic, um, and it seems just the essence of Hammer. Um, there was such such cheaply made films um, I, I know lots of people have um, a, they've got a very special place in people's hearts including mine and I you know James Bernard was just one of those people it's probably a very small company of people who made these films who really put in so much effort to make them seem much better than these quite cheap things that they were but absolutely fantastic stuff <laughs> What's the sex shop called? No, I haven't. Not Anne, Anne Summers. Anne Summers. <laughs> Have you been to the Anne Francis mail order catalogue? I've got a little rib tickler. Okay. Yes. <laughs> is, that, is that what it's called? No, that's, I mean, yeah, you probably wouldn't get it from there, but Irreversible by Gaspar Noe. <laughs> Not far off the mark, actually. <laughs> Thomas Bangalter's score for this. Uh, I recently went to see... Um, What's it called? Tron. Tron Legacy. Tron Legacy. Because yeah, he's from Daft Punk, isn't he? Yeah, yeah he's one half of Daft yeah. Punk. And I was so fucking underwhelmed by that film. And I was particularly distraught at the. Daft Punk made one of the like the seminal electronic albums. Well, it's house really, house albums of the nineties. It, it was extraordinary. The oh. homework album, and. You know they've got extraordinary production skills. They've got a really, they've got a very um, refined taste yeah. in uh, electronic music, the history of disco and stuff like that. Tron Legacy was not that. It was just another electronic score that was boring and and just did what was going on on screen, which was boring and repetitive. Mm. I mean, I do like that soundtrack. Um, I I saw the film and it was the first three D movie I saw, but I did get the soundtrack on Spotify beforehand just yeah. to sort of get it. I do like it, but yeah, people wouldn't be wrong if they said this just sounds like the music from, uh, is it The Dark Knight, the second of the Batman films? It's got right. that. It, you can imagine Daft Punk writing it and it being transcribed as orchestral. Hans did that, didn't yeah. He, yeah. Um, and yeah, what's the actual Daft Punk track? And is it D Res or something? Yeah. It sounds like 
because like so I, I mean, I'm not as uh, sounds like gash. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not as huge an authority on electronic music, sort of the hip hop stuff. But mm. I, I really love homework. Uh, yeah. See, I saw Daft Punk live um, when that came out. It's the best gig I've ever been to. It was absolutely fantastic. <laughs> Girl I was with fell asleep while she was dancing. <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, and the, the follow-up album, Discovery, which they actually had a whole um, movie that went along with this kind of uh, anime the thing, animation. which, you know, but it, it, it has some good stuff on, but Homework's such a fantastic yeah, album. Yeah, it's awesome. But I'm not talking about yeah, Irreversible. Irreversible, which is, you know, infamous. Most people know this film. If they're not familiar with it, you know, well, just go and watch the it. The one scene that went on it. about the length of time we've just read Matt Nieder's email. Yeah, <laughs> eight and a half minutes with a static camera when the rest of the film's been moving. Yeah, just this is, it's got a few Bang Alter singles in there for like some party scenes and that. But it's the it's the more incidental music. Like there's a, this is very low frequency, like what I was trying to recreate at the beginning. Which is just this is the very opening of the movie. Yes. Yeah. So as they go into this club and the it's camera's so, moving, yeah, it's moving around three hundred sixty degrees all the time. And then you get little flashes of this very hard banging techno music with loads of hi hats and kick drums going off. And I actually went to. I'm going to be careful here. I didn't go to a club like the club featured in the film, but there's a club I went to in Germany called Trezor, which has since closed down and reopened. But the original one was in a a bank vault a disused bank vault in East Berlin and it was similar to that that sort of feeling of you'd be underground it'd be dark and there'd just be smoke machines and strobe lights and you'd be disorientated and the music's just pounding your fucking head in <laughs> and that's what is captured in this sort of soundtrack it's just it's very uh, it's visceral for want of yeah. a better word no, I, I mean I went to see uh, Irreversible when it came out and I was prepared the scene everyone was on about is this sort of eight minutes of rape in a subway um, not to belittle that but the opening made me feel physically ill and I don't think so much of it was what was being physically depicted it was this rotating Sound. camera because you're in a cinema so you've got oh, nothing right, to watch yeah. but the screen and it was the camera turning round and round and round. But yeah, as you say, the, the music seemed to be at that, um, is it called the brown note? Yes. <laughs> it's meant yeah. to be a very low <laughs> uh, resonance or whatever on music, which just makes you feel physically It's vomit-inducing. And yeah, I felt so like seasick before it even got anywhere. And then after that, that's the actual scene I felt really uncomfortable with. Um, not uncomfortable, that's like a moral thing my physical reaction was I can't watch this was yeah. that when the uh, the first scene you get is this guy's head being pummeled in with a fire extinguisher and the whole frame shakes every That's time <laughs> every time there's an impact the whole and frame shakes and then it shakes. does like a turn and uh, it's, yeah I mean it's but just one more thing with Daft Punk I mean that album Homework mm. <laughs> going back 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 the, what the first single off that um, Dafunk is the, the Spike Jones video, a very famous. Oh, Spike with the dog, with the dog, yeah, with a, with a crutch. And after that, the uh, well, that was Michelle Gondry, wasn't it? I around think. the world, did, around the world, which is it's probably the, my favorite music video. Yeah, uh, absolutely fantastic. That, that's it's the essence of simplicity. Though. Yeah, <laughs> simplicity, but absolutely in in, in, in uh, tandem with uh, that great music. It's superb. Isn't it?
okay, my next one is Mission Impossible, um, specifically the Danny Elfman score. You sat up straight in your chair, certainly <laughs> then. Yeah, I mean, the Lilo Schifrin, um, the original theme is absolutely brilliant, isn't mm. it? It's, you know, mobile phones were invented for somebody <laughs> yeah. irritating to play that <laughs> on there. That is a great theme. Uh, the thing I'll say about the, the Danny Elfman, I, I really love the first um, Mission Impossible film. Elfman is very famous for doing sort of Tim Burton's Batman, and we we had a little bit of a pop at him last time for um, Dick Tracy, which is a little bit too similar. And also The Simpsons is very famous for. And this soundtrack has very cartoonish elements to it, but they really work well with the film because it seems to suggest that the director realizes, you know, as ludicrous as the film gets, he's kind of you know, it's like De Palma or whoever. Anyone making the film's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. We know, we know, it's a bit daft. <laughs> But the music is really great at evoking proper sort of action and tension in the right scenes. And um, actually, they don't use any music at all during the famous scene when they're breaking into the computer vault. But um, there are a few key scenes. The big finale, certainly when they're on, uh, it's not the Eurostar. I didn't think they got to use that name for copyright purposes. A really chaotic finale to it. And... Um, throughout it, I, no I think it's a really good soundtrack, uh, right from the opening which I remember I remember going into the cinemas to watch this when it came out and I, was, I didn't have high expectations, but from the very beginning you've got the Paramount mountain with the stars circulating yeah. and you've got this military drum beat like you get in a, a West Point Academy or something, Tattoo. going mm. from speaker to speaker and building up and it's uh, from there absolutely hooked I think yeah. it's a really fantastic soundtrack I genuinely think that's a brilliant film as well, I yeah. think it's up there with De Palma's best to be honest well I think at that point I remember going think of thinking De Palma's done nothing but turkeys why am I, watch, <laughs> why am I showing out six quid or whatever it was to watch totally won me over yeah, yeah nice it's However, fantastic. yeah, a uh, couple of De Palma's very early ones wouldn't mind covering at some uh, point. Yeah, well, is it Greetings Denio of High Mom? Di- Diagio? The, the, I, f- I, f- I can't say his name yeah. probably because I can't remember it, but it's the, the guy who did like Dress to Kill and Carrie, I think, and stuff. Who did he actually did Gore, but mm. he was uncredited with doing the soundtrack for Gore. Yeah, because that's it. Some of those early De Palma movies, like Dressed to Kill, the music seems overly romantic, and you're not sure if they're taking the piss or not. You know, despite this point I've just made, that it sounds like they're yeah. making something cartoonish. <laughs> but no, that that's a great soundtrack. And you know, the the sequels. We've got another one coming around Christmas time, as we record oh, it. Shit, yeah, I forgot about. They're that. not great, but I think part of what doesn't work is the soundtracks are a bit more conventional. You know, Elf and John Woo directs one of them. <laughs> yeah, always a and gets limbiscuit lim <laughs> to, uh, to, to rework the. Uh, it gets limb wristed. <laughs> rework that theme tune. Carry on, sir. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to try a double whammy here. Um, I'm going for two Kubrick films. I I cannot not include Kubrick. Um, a very obvious one is Clockwork Orange, Walter Stroke, Wendy Carlos. Um, Walter at that point, I think. 
Oh yeah, before the your blockos got snipped. Aye. <laughs> <laughs> Clockwork Orange for me is. I was growing up like loving films and that, and this is one of the the films that, as a, a youth, I was wishing. You know, everyone said, "Oh, I've seen that on pirate." It's like, have you? Have you really? And then it got to the point where it was released when I was about twenty, I think. Yeah, we should just clarify that because I know we've got a lot of overseas listeners. Until Kubrick died, you couldn't watch this legally in England. It was um, it was like the Kubrick estate. Well, Kubrick himself had withdrawn the copyright. Was it not it. banned worldwide though? No, no, no. Um, I thought it was. It wasn't banned. It was Kubrick withdrew the copyright because he was getting death threats and so much hassle from. Oh, people. that's because right, at in one Britain, point Channel Four made a documentary where yeah, they wanted to show snippets right. of it, and they could use it for review purposes yeah because they, Kubrick tried to set them to the court and yeah. they were like well no this is ridiculous yeah. whereas <laughs> in America you could you know buy this fairly normally in a yeah. video shop same with The Exorcist that was another film you just couldn't see in Britain till you couldn't get it on home video or whatever till sometime later on yeah so, so a real forbidden forbidden fruit element to it and then as soon as Kubrick popped his clogs god bless him you know they uh, didn't waste any time in putting this out at the cinema, and yeah, I saw this at the Liverpool Odeon on London Road, and that opening sequence with in the the milk bar, uh, with the Henry Purcell's uh, funeral march for Queen Mary, but the when uh, Walter Carlos version, and the camera is just like drawing back through this milk bar, is is mesmerising. It, it really stays in my mind. It's I can't think of anything an equivalent I mean I can think of stuff within my life personally but it, it was just a really extraordinary moment for me to see yeah. something that had been contained for 30 years by your that lifetime point. Yeah. yeah my yeah. entire lifetime <laughs> well, that's an interesting thing um, I want to draw on our age differences there I, I first saw it it was kind of a hooky Dutch video I seem to recall um, but it had this reputation at that point I didn't know that it was Kubrick which had withdrawn it I thought it had been banned because it was so unacceptable so I had dreams before I watched it that it was going to be like a snuff movie Thundering Dreams of Clockwork Orange dreams, <laughs> um, and yeah it was what led to the collapse of the Scala I mean I'm sure it's yeah. downhill anyway uh, but they showed it and there was a copyright battle over. anyway um, the I wanted to comment on the age difference between us because when I watched that film um, it looks it, Clockwork Orange visually has so much of that look of the 70s trying to look at the future and it just looks so 70s I know that's always going to happen if you're projecting forward um, but also that whole thing of taking classical pieces and doing an electronic rendition because I know there was the Hooked on Classics album that they did with um, and I think I think when Carl, uh, World Carlos Clavier. did an entire thing, World Tempered Clavier switched on Mozart, switched on back, so, switched on back. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> that whole thing now to me doesn't ever—it's it, never seemed futuristic. It's always seemed very much pinned in the 1970s. So to watch it in the mid 90s, early 90s, I first saw it, just seemed like it was 20, 30 years out of date. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. not for me at all. I, I, I think. Um, I'm a bit of a slave to Kubrick, though. Anyway, I, I just think it was uh, it was visionary. So double header. Yeah. So and also, 2001: A Space Odyssey. I can't not what? mention that. Is that the one with the spaceman and the Time of the Apes monkeys? <laughs> yeah. Obviously, there's the Richard Strauss also Zarathustra, which is become iconic image and sonically, but for me, it's 
it's the fucking monkeys, man. <laughs> it's the monkeys grasping at the monolith with um, Giorgi Ligeti's uh, Luxatona disembodied choral singing. That's just really scary. It's so good. It's so well used. This sort of ab- abstract modern classical music, but it's not. It's not music. I mean, it's, it's just voices like singing. It's really wonky choral noise. And, yeah. Um, this was this debuted on British TV, I think Christmas eighty one or something, and I watched it with my mum and dad. I remember when I watched that, thinking two thousand one, it's the world's most famous science fiction film. It's going to be fantastic. I wasn't really sure what it was going to be about, but the fact that the first twenty odd minutes were monkeys and this music, which just put me on edge. Um, yeah, but well, this, that's that's the point I wanted to make. It's another example of the music just sets the tone for the entire film, mm. and you just think, what? Where's this going? And it usually crops up throughout the movie whenever the monolith turns up. Yeah, because it is my favourite Kubrick film, like hands down, because you know, there's not much dialogue. Not Hans Zimmer. No, <laughs> there's not much dialogue, which is always a plus for me. And That's what my mum said in 1981. <laughs> Does anyone speak in this film? <laughs> Before carrying on with her knitting. <laughs> and yeah, just the attention to like the the contrast between the silent parts where the you know they're outside of um, the spacecraft and. Then you've got the momentous musical moments as well. It's yeah, it's absolutely adorable. Hold on, let's not go any further. We've got way too many soundtracks, so uh, let's split this into two parts. Are you ready to come back next time? Yeah, just uh, split those one parts into two parts. <laughs> I'll be there. What an incredible visual image that is. Okay, we're going to be back, back, back. We're going to be Burt Bacharach right after this. Adios. See you soon. <laughs>